going to look at Genesis chapter 2, which is right at the beginning on page 4 of your church Bibles. Starting at verse 18, Genesis, sorry, Genesis chapter 2, page 4. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all of the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Thanks for reading that for us. Now, I don't know how you feel about group photographs. We've got one coming up here. I'll be honest. When group photos are being passed around, there's only one person I'm really looking for, and that's me. Um, That's why this is a rubbish photograph. I'm not even in it. And don't pretend you don't do the same. You do the same, don't you? A group photograph comes around. The first face you're looking for is yourself, and you're disappointed if you don't see it. And anyway, these days, we don't even bother with the subtlety of kind of sneaking a look in a group photograph to see if we're in it. It's the age of the selfie, isn't it? Uh, The profile picture. We're fascinated with ourselves, desperate uh, to look and be our best, even when often we don't really know where our best is. And it reflects, I think, the questions uh, we're asking. Not always out loud, but I think going on inside is, uh, who am I? Uh, what am I meant to look like? How am I meant to look? What am I for? And Genesis 2, this chapter, if you were here last week, that we began to go through as we're going through this beginnings of Genesis, this chapter we started to look at, it kind of shows us a picture, a, a sort of blueprint selfie. I don't really know if that's a thing, but if you can imagine a kind of blueprint selfie, And it says to us, that's you, that is. That's you, that's you at your best. What you're intended to be. Uh, Read the chapter again. We've read part of it again tonight. We'll kind of recap a little bit of last week. But read the chapter and you'll see it's framed in two big areas of life. Work and weddings. Do you remember last week? Verse 15, if you've got it there in front of you, it says something like this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. But we've just read this week, verse 24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Genesis 2 says, this is what you were meant to look like. Red in the face, the end of the working day, and pink in the face, morning after your wedding night. It's an intriguing picture, isn't it? And it all takes place in this Garden of Eden. That word Eden kind of means delight. 
Genesis 2 shows us a picture of work and love and says, this was to be your life. This is what, uh, this was to be who you were. Work and love that's delightfully, well, delightfully free. You try and get your head around the picture that it's showing us. And look, if you, if you want to take notes, here's, here's a first little heading for you. And it's simply this, look, real life Real life comes from God. That's where it started. Let me just recap a little bit of last week. Do you remember back in verse 7? We're told this, The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And, and the man became a living being. Steve said last week, if you were here, look, chapter 1, it, it shows us creation, this slightly different account, it shows us creation from the cosmic perspective. A transcendent God who is just so dripping with life. He simply speaks and things fly into existence. But then chapter 2 says to us, don't think God doesn't do details. Verse 7, the creation of people, the creation of people has God's thumbprints on it. God makes people's bodies. That's what this tells us. More than that, you just look at verse 7 again. We're We're told this, God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. You understand what that's saying? It's it's putting kind of stylized language. Look, human life, it flows directly from God's own life. As you read through this chapter and you begin to mull over it, you you see what we're being told. It's, It's saying amongst other things, look, your body, this body you're sitting in tonight, your body... It matters to God. Our culture is becoming kind of increasingly confused about our bodies, isn't it? The kind of things we do. It's, it's kind of admired and even worshipped at some points, but in other ways it seems very confused at times. If, if I were to go to the doctor and say, look, my, my arm, I feel my arm just doesn't reflect who I am as a person and I'd like it to be removed... I think the doctor, you, you'd understand, might say there's, there's a different kind of help we need to offer you. And yet, not to be crude about it, if you go to the doctor and say there's other parts of my body that I don't think really reflect who I feel I am, you'd potentially be sent for gender reassignment. And you understand what's beginning to go on there. Your body, your body's not the real you. In fact, it's not you at all. How you feel that's you but your body doesn't really matter. It's a kind of subtle message. At the same time, it's kind of saying it does matter. It's sort of saying, no, it doesn't matter. You can do what you want with your body, and it doesn't really affect the real you. But you begin to read Genesis 2, and it says to you, your body is you. It's been made by God, and it matters to him. And it also says, you know that breath you've just taken? You know the way a baby in the womb depends on the breathing of their mother? It's kind of what it's saying here. God's hard, hardwired into your life, this same kind of thing. Your, your life depends on his life. Real life comes from God. The atheist and writer Richard Dawkins, I think it was him who said something like this. Look, he said, the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect. If there is at the bottom no design... No purpose, no evil, and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. The universe we observe. Is that the universe you observe? 
one of you were to look at a new mother holding her newborn. Is that what you see? Do you think you'd find yourself saying to her as you looked at the baby, well, well, there it is. In the final analysis, the product of blind, pitiless indifference. There's nothing to it, really, in the final analysis. We don't feel that, do we? We feel we're significant, that bodies matter, that who we are matters. There might be people like Dawkins who says, well, get over yourself. It, It doesn't really matter. But when you feel that... When you feel that your significance, that we're matter, as you breathe in, Genesis 2 says to you, every breath, every breath you take in this body matters. And if you want to be free, if you want to be free to be really you, you've got to remember this. Real life, it comes from God. It depends on Him. Here's the second thing, the real life secured by God's Word. I was thinking about donuts this week. I thinking about donuts quite a bit, actually. I thought to myself, donuts are brilliant, aren't they? Do you like donuts? And then I thought, but jam donuts. Jam donuts, they're next level, aren't they? Donuts, good. Jam donuts, next level. And it's the bit in the middle, isn't it? It's the bit in the middle that makes the whole thing fly. You love it with a jam donut and you find one that's just oozing with jam in the middle. It's the bit in the middle that makes it fly. This, this garden of delights, Genesis 2, that people find themselves in. Do you remember what makes it fly? Steve showed us last week, it's the bit in the middle. Verse 9. If you've got it there in front of you, just have another little look in it. Down towards the bottom of verse 9, we're told There's two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so only when you read to verse 16, you discover they stand for two very different destinies. Because the trees are mutually exclusive. Take one, you can't have the other. And because one is the tree of life, if you take the other, you'll lose life in the end. That was verse 16. And The Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. It's freedom with one no. Steve was showing us these trees. They can't be merely knowing the difference between right and wrong because God's already told Adam it would be wrong to eat from that tree. He knows right and wrong. No, this tree is about saying, I will know good and evil only with reference to myself. I'll be the jam in my own particular donut. I'll be the person who's going to make things fly. I'll decide for myself without any input from God what right and wrong is. It's a declaration of independence. I'll live in a world that depends on God, but I won't let him tell me how to live. The freedom I want is freedom from God with my money with my work, with my body, with my values, with my relationships, even with my religion. I want to do it my way. And God says, that's not freedom. You'll only be free if my word shapes your life. Now, you kind of say that. Maybe you're here 
and you're not a Christian yet, and you, you think about these things, and you think, that just sounds crazy to say that freedom depends on being constrained in this kind of way. Maybe you've got friends you've talked to about this kind of thing, and they, they view you as a Christian. You think, why would you let your life be constrained in this way? People sometimes say that, don't you? It's ridiculous. You can't be free if you've got constraints. Uh, Jessica Ennis-Hill, one of our, our great modern athletes, uh, watching her compete, I think anyone would agree she enjoyed a certain freedom in her events. So here's the question. Now that freedom, was it the result of no constraints? So I don't think so. Not if, not if most of the interviews she gave are to be believed, because when she was training, it meant, and here's some of the things she said, it meant not wearing high heels, not drinking wine, not eating certain foods, not staying up late, not staying in bed in the morning. You hear all that stuff and you think, gosh, what a Puritan. Jessica, for goodness sake, live a little. No, but you don't say that, do you? Because you understand her freedom didn't rely on no constraints, but the right constraints. Tim Keller uh, says in his book, The Reason for God, freedom then, if you think about it this way, if you want to know what freedom is when it really in any area of life, but what the Bible is talking about when it talks about freedom, when it talks about setting you free, this is what Keller says, freedom then is not the absence of limitations and constraints, but in finding the right ones, those that fit our nature, that liberate us. Understand what he's saying, constraints that really allow you to be who you are. Genesis says, that we live in God's world, we're made by God, our lives depend on God's life, and God alone can tell us how to be free the way we're made to be. It's a funny thing, isn't it? As soon as you start thinking this kind of way, because when the Bible feels like it's beginning to constrain you, this says it's actually doing the opposite. It's wanting to set you free. Real life is centered around God's word. It feels risky, doesn't it? What will life be like if I let God be in control? If I say yes to God and no to myself, what's going to happen? Or what's going to happen to me if I hand over control of my life to this God, if I let him begin to say what's the right way for me to live? Well, here's where we come to the third thing, the, and really the passage we read tonight. And here's the thing, look, Real life begins to share a God-shaped love. The search for love is almost as tricky as the search for the perfect selfie, isn't it? I see people spending endless time trying to get the, the perfect selfie. The search for love can feel that way. It dominates life, doesn't it? It occupies so much time, the search for love. When we're not looking for it or lamenting its loss, we're watching films or reading books about other people looking for love or lamenting its loss, aren't we? Whether it's romantic love, the love of family or good friends, finding the right people, the right person, it's hard, isn't it? came across this little video clip in a TV show. I think John's just going to put it on for us to watch. Just have a look at this, see what you think. 
I did say in just a minute. We're only at, we're only at 45 seconds now. Hey, did you hear the bank on the corner is offering $100 if you go in there and they don't greet you with a hello? Oh, really? That's nice. Ma, what's with you? I think I'm in love. Oh, come on. No, it's true. This woman saved my life. I was crossing the street. I was almost hit by a car. And then we talked and... The whole thing just seemed like a dream. If a guy saved your life, you'd be in love with him, too. Oh, no, this woman is different. She's incredible. She's just like me. She talks like me. She acts like me. She even orders cereal in a restaurant. We even have the same initials. Wait a minute. I just realized what's going on. What? Now I know what I've been looking for all these years. Myself. <laughs> I've been waiting for me to come along. And now I've swept myself off my feet! You stop it, man! You're freaking me out! It's a, it's a great line, isn't it? Now I know what I've been looking for all these years. Myself. It feels ridiculous, but then you think... You think about some of the things in our culture, don't you? People constantly updating profile pictures putting themselves out there. Perhaps a hint of, look, notice me, look at me, love me. Or changing attitudes towards marriage and divorce. One observer said this, I read it just a while back. He, he said this, many now see the dissolution of marriage as not a tragedy that undermines the social order, but an entitlement that offers individuals the chance to remake themselves and live more emotionally satisfying lives. And they go on to write this. In the vast number of divorces, there is no gross strife or violence that could warp a youngster's childhood. The majority of marital breakups today are driven by a quest for greener grass. It is known as the expressive divorce. Why so many divorces? Well, because I love myself first. Now I know what I've been looking for all my life. Myself. I don't think just because you come to church regularly that you're any different to that kind of stuff. We're all tempted that way, aren't we? To be God in our own particular universe, to put ourselves first. We'd be appalled if, if we thought anyone imagined we felt that way. Yet we all seem to want to make ourselves the center of things. Lay down our own law. We're turned in on ourselves often. But Genesis 2 says... That's not who you were made to be. Verse 18 comes as a bit of a shock in the narrative. You've got it there in front of you. Something's not good in the garden of delight. Something's missing. Adam's on his own. He's not yet had to lock himself in the bathroom so he can be alone for a few minutes. A relationship's needed and a particular kind. In verses 19 to 20, a writer Moses, he, I think he's partly trying to build a bit of playful tension. We're, we're told, now the Lord God formed out of the ground all the wild animals. Now back in verse 7, God formed Adam out of the ground. So here's something a bit like him. But it's not one of the animals that's needed. You know, people who say things like, Man's best friend is a 
It's a dog. Have you heard that? It's crazy, isn't it? The person who thinks man's best friend is a dog is way wrong. That's not right. And when it comes to it, in verse 22, it's not even another Adam, another man. And it's not just another man that's going to be required. The relationship that's needed for humanity to function as intended is verse 22. It's a woman. That's what Adam calls her. And he sees her in verse 23. And to shape the pattern of silly male reactions to women for the centuries to come, it looks like he has a little bit of a dance and he sings a little song to her. There's a bit of poetry that goes on here. And he says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. Or if he was tweeting, he'd have probably done something like hashtag wow, hashtag in love, hashtag couple, hashtag forever, hashtag Netflix and curry, something like that. You know the kind of thing they do today. And back in Genesis 1, you remember when God says, let us, let us make man in our image, male and female, he created them. Back in Genesis 1, we got a hint, this one God who made everything is multipersonal. And as the Bible unfolds, we'll discover God is a trinity of persons loving each other. Three who are equal, but different who are one. Begin to understand what that means. Personally, God is not turned in on himself. But in himself, the most profound and incredible way in himself always and eternally, God is turned out in other person-centered love. The Father always loving the Son, the Son always loving the Father with the Holy Spirit, turned out in other person-centered love. And as God makes people, as God makes people to reflect his image, to reflect and enjoy the shape of his kind of life, See, it makes sense they reflect something of that relational quality. Two who are equal but different who become one. This is the direction that God wants to take you in. Now that's what we're shown here, aren't we? People who are equal but different. Adam says it in verse 23. You see it there. This is bone of my bone. She's like me. She shall be called woman. She's different to me. She's not just the same. Men say silly things at times, don't they? Men who think the highest compliment you can pay a woman is saying she thinks just like a man. They've missed the point, haven't they? Women are not meant to think just the same way, exactly the same as men. Men are not meant to think exactly the same way as women. There's difference, but you get this. Genesis says, it's value-added difference. The difference brings something you can't get anywhere else. Uh, There's a quality and purpose. You read these chapters and you understand both will reflect God's image together. But there's a hint of difference in roles. The the woman, we're told, is made made to be a helper to Adam. But don't think inferiority. If you're someone who thinks this kind of way, that the role, the role you have, always equals your status, you're always going to have problems with this. Because whenever you see difference in role, you'll think it's inferiority or superiority. 
that for the Bible, difference in roles does not compromise equality in status. I know there can be equality of status even with difference in roles, and that's what we're being shown here. Now, let me mention a few other things. Just as you, as you read this chapter about the, the first man and woman, I think you have to begin to think as you read this, however hard it is to hear, I think this part of the Bible is telling us when it comes to gender, gender is a given thing. It's not something we construct or discover in ourselves. It's given. There is a binary distinction between being a man or being a woman. There's difference there. That's what the Bible's saying to us at this point. I think it also says something about marriage, doesn't it? It says marriage has a designed shape that has been given in creation. Genesis 2 is telling us marriage is intended to be a lifelong commitment between one, uh, one man and one woman. And it will be the only context within which sexual activity is to be conducted. That's what it's saying. And more than that, with with the people involved here, with this first man and woman, they display an intense other person-centered love. You could almost miss it, couldn't you? But there is loving excitement in this passage. Adam is almost jumping up and down, but it, it works out practically even when the emotions aren't there. See, in verse 18, we're told that the woman will be a helper to Adam. She's going to use her life to support his life. I think that sounds incredibly controversial today, doesn't it? To say that that's her purpose. It's other person-centered love. But you read verse 24, when you read these words, this is, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam, we're being told, is going to make all other loyalties subservient to this new loyalty to his wife. He's going to use his life to make hers his priority. It's other person-centered love here. The context is how they will together live in response to God, reflecting his kind of love. That's what people are for, to reflect what God's like. That's what you're for. Before you say, look, it's not fair. I should be free to be whoever I want, to do whatever I feel is free. And just remember, that's not the kind of freedom Genesis 2 wants to lead you to. Freedom here is free to reflect a God-shaped life made by him, ordered by him, and it is a loving thing. Can you see as well, those of you who are not married yet, can you see why the Bible would say to you, if you are a Christian, you should marry a Christian? See, as a woman, if a key purpose is to help your husband live for God, to reflect what he's like, you won't be able to do that if he doesn't even know God, doesn't want to live for God. If you're a man, if a wife is meant to help you reflect God and live for him, if she doesn't care about God, she won't be able to do that. I don't know most of you here, 
I guess there might be some, as many of my friends are as well, you might be in the situation where you're married to someone who's not a Christian. The Bible says, look, it's a genuine marriage. You're to be just as committed to it. Pray for your spouse. But if you're not married yet, listen to what God says. He's not trying to constrain you. If you feel God's word is constraining you at that point, it's only doing that. In order, you, in order to bring you to the freedom that God wants. Now, there's lots of things to think there. Just, just as we draw this to a close, look, when I'm looking at group photos, and when they come across, this is a trivial thing, but when I'm looking at group photos, it, it's always a bit disappointing if I can't see myself in the picture. And I think when you look at this chapter, I think many of us, we could look at Genesis 2 and find ourselves thinking, I just don't seem to be in this picture. Or I don't seem to fit this picture. As it's talked about work and it's talked about love and relationships, maybe for you work is a mess. Maybe you find yourself frustratingly single. Maybe you're someone who is struggling in marriage, in married life. Maybe you're someone who has differing thoughts about gender or sexual attraction. I think in any group of people, any of us, in any group this size, there's bound to be those things going on. We don't say these kind of things flippantly. And you might be sitting there thinking, look, if Genesis tells us that God orders the world, then why does everything seem so disordered? Why does my life feel disordered? Why does society around me seem so disordered? I think what I just want to say tonight, if that's your question, it's a good question. I wouldn't want you to think tonight that's a silly question or the wrong question to ask. Come back next week. We're going to be looking a little bit more at some of the disordered nature of the world we live in. We'll look some more. But what I want to say tonight is the Bible is not mocking us when it shows us these things. It's not holding up the perfect picture of life and work and love just to say you'll never have it. You can't have this. See, in the big story of the Bible, it wants to say this picture gives a hint of where God wants to lead you to. Read the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. You'll, you'll find human relationships described again in terms of work and weddings and all the joys of those things describing a new kind of life. And you think, well, how do I get it? How do I get in on it? Again, we'll think a bit more on that in the coming weeks. But if you've got a Bible in front of you, could I ask you to turn over uh, to John chapter 20 in the New Testament? I think it's on page 1089. 1089 on the Bibles in front of you. And let me just read a few verses. This is after Jesus has died and risen from the dead. John chapter 20, verse 19. Jesus appears to his disciples after his resurrection. It says this, on the, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. 
And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Let's stop there. How'd you get in on this? Jesus has, has gone to the cross, paying the penalty for a rejection of God. His life was constrained on the cross, wasn't it? Constrained in a most profound way at his Father's command. And then he comes to his disciples, and you see what John tells us. He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. What a funny thing to do. What an unusual thing to do and to say. He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. It's a funny thing until you remember. It's like a repeat of the creation story, isn't it? God the Son breathing new life into people. And you understand what's going on. His life was constrained so yours could be set free. So he could breathe new life into you. If you want to start living freely, if you want to be really you, if you want to keep heading towards the good life, that God offers, then this is saying your life needs to be linked with Jesus' life. This Jesus, who in John's gospel is called the Word of God. And you need to let his word start to shape what you do. I'm going to stop there and pray in just a moment. On your little cards, it says at the bottom, what questions, what questions do you still have as you come to the end of Genesis 2? I think next week, or we have, we're not, in a couple of weeks' time, we're going to be having a Q&A session uh, during one of our evening services. If you've still got questions, you can chat to me at the end or John. But if you've got questions, you mind jot them down so you don't forget them. Because we want to make time, uh, make sure we've got time uh, for those questions. Let me pray for us, and then I'm going to hand back over to John. Heavenly Father, thank you for this part of Genesis for the way it gives us a picture of people as we were originally made. We live in confusing times. All sorts of, all sorts of voices speak to us. Help us to hear and think about what you say, that real life comes from you, that it's centered around your word, and that if we trust you, you'll lead us so that we will reflect the same kind of love that you have and enjoy that through Jesus. Amen.